have wanted to come and have speak to us. And because we live in Syracuse, just so happens to be the headquarters city of our state, our network youth and Chi Alpha director was available. And I called and I asked Jared, I said, listen, is there any possibility that you would be available for this Sunday to come to Grace Assembly? He was able to arrange his schedule in such a way that he could be here today. And so I would like to have you give a warm welcome to our national youth and our network youth and Chi Alpha director, Jared Berry, as he comes to share his heart with us this morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. I am not the National Youth Director. I said, don't you speak that into existence. I don't want to move to Springfield, Missouri. It's so good to be with you. I love, I love your church. Uh, feels like a second home to me. I've spent a lot of time with your youth ministry over the years and getting to hang out with your students and love your pastoral staff. And I'm so thankful for your lead pastor um, and his vision and all that he's done to pour into my life. If you didn't know uh, he used to do the job that I currently do and uh, set the bar pretty high. So I'm not super grateful for that. I wish he would have kind of fumbled it a bit more, but I am thankful for his friendship and, and mentorship in my life. So, hey, this morning I wanna, uh, I'm thankful to be able to be a part of this emphasis, this mission's emphasis. And I want to ask you a question. The question is this, will you fight? Will you fight? I'm hoping this morning we can leave here together saying that we will. Uh, I grew up in the church. Anybody else grew up in the church? My whole life, I remember uh, it was a non-negotiable. I was there every Sunday. We had youth group Sunday nights. I was there, service Wednesday nights. And, you know, every now and then the pastor would get a little antsy. He'd say, we're having a revival week, and we have service every night. And my parents, they, we were there. That was our life. That was my life. I remember. And, um, and, and one of the reasons I love that I get to do youth ministry is I remember being a middle school kid going to a summer camp, coming up to an altar. The, the, the speaker said, if you want to hear God's voice, come up. I remember going up and I heard God for the first time in my life. It wasn't audible, but I knew it was God. He said, you're going to be a pastor one day. And I didn't know what that meant, but I was like, hey, only have to work 30 minutes on a Sunday. That sounds incredible. You know, if I have two services, only 60 minutes, I mean, it's, that's, that's great. God will figure out how to do the rest. And so, uh, so, so I did that. I graduated high school, went to uh, Bible college, and studied youth ministry. And, um, and I was there, I met my wife, and we started to dream and think about what youth ministry was going to be like. We had all these ideas. We pictured, like, you know, coming in and hundreds and thousands of students coming into our youth group, preaching these sermons where the kids were just so responsive. They, they hung on every word that I said. They were, they were coming to the altars in droves and called into the mission field, going, reaching their schools, right? I, I mean, had these amazing events. I pictured all this stuff hanging out, kids loving us. It was going to be incredible. Maybe some articles will be written about us. I don't know. We'll see. But I had these ideas, right, about what ministry was going to be like. And, and I remember my wife and I, we graduated Bible college. We moved to Long Island, New York to start our very first job as youth pastors. And the entire first year we did it, it was nothing like I dreamed. In fact, we hated it. It was the hardest thing we've ever done. The kids didn't like us. They definitely didn't like my sermons. All the games I prepared, they said were lame, right? Every week we'd get back to our little apartment and say, thank you, God, that we have a whole week before we have to do that again because we need your help, Lord. Like, it was brutal. It was hard. And, and I remember going through that process and thinking the solution is if I build it, they will come. That was my ministry mindset. 
So the reason why they're not responding or, or coming or showing up is because i got to build it better, right? i got to make my space better. So how do we get better lights, and how do we get a better worship team, and how do I make my sermons funnier, and how do I tweak the, the space in the building so that the students will come in? Because if I can build it right, then they'll come, and that's how we're going to reach them. And so I spent five or six years of youth pastoring with that mindset about ministry, with that mindset about the mission of God. My job is to build it, and then they'll come. And it wasn't until I remember one weekend, five or six years into full-time pastoral ministry, I got invited to go to a college student conference in Texas. And I went there, and there was over 1,000 college students. Half of them were not Christians. But what happened that weekend would change my life forever and my understanding of the mission of God. See, every student I met that weekend had a similar story. I would go up and introduce myself, and they say, hey, yeah, my name's John. They say, this guy over here, he, he discipled me. He led me to Jesus. And now, see those group of guys over there? They're in my small group. I'm discipling them, and two of them I'm baptizing this weekend. Every single student that I met had been discipled and led to Jesus while at college, and was now discipling other students in the Jesus, and many of them were baptizing. Hundreds of college students were baptized in water by fellow college students who had led them to the Lord and discipled them in their faith that weekend. Here's why it shattered me. I had been in the church for five or six years full time, and most of the people in our church had never led anyone to Jesus. In fact, most of them didn't even have an intentional friendship with someone who didn't know God. And I thought to myself, we are missing something big here. See, it was that weekend that I was really introduced to the text we're going to look at this morning in a new and a fresh way, 2 Timothy 2. When I started to understand the heart and mission of God was not if you build it, they will come. But the heart and mission of God was something more powerful. That God wanted to do something in each one of us as followers of him to send us out to go make disciples of all nations, both locally where we live, but also globally all throughout the world. So this morning, here's what I want to encourage you to lean in to this text. Here's what I believe. God may be wanting to challenge you and change your perspective about his mission and your involvement in it. Maybe just maybe this morning the Holy Spirit wants to do something in us to raise up a group of people here in Syracuse that would change our community and ultimately change the world for his glory. Somebody said amen to that. I'm going to read 2 Timothy 2, then I'm going to pray and we'll jump in. Here's what it says. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to dive into your word and talk about your mission, God. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would speak to each heart in this place, each heart that's watching online, God, that you would challenge us as to what it means to be a follower of you, to the expectations and the opportunity and privilege that we have to share in your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you three thoughts today, three aspects of discipleship that are laid out in this text. And here's why I think it's important. The mission of God that has been given to all of us as believers is laid out in, in Matthew. If you remember in, in the text in Matthew chapter 28, 19, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission for every believer. It doesn't matter what your job is or what you're good at or what you're talented in. 
We all share the same mission, which is to go and make disciples. And the New Testament mandate for making disciples is that we are all called to make disciples locally, right? That's why I love your vision statement. We're all called to make disciples locally. The better translation is, as you go, make disciples. Some of us are called to leave where we are locally and to go to a new place to make disciples there. Not all of us are called, but some of us are called. But for the ones who are not called to that, we are called to support those who are. So the biblical expectation as laid out in the New Testament is that all of us make disciples locally and that all of us support those who are making disciples globally. This morning we're going to look at this letter that Paul is writing to his spiritual son Timothy as he lays out what it means to make disciples both locally and globally. And I'm going to share three thoughts with you. And so Paul, if you remember the story, maybe you don't, maybe you're new to it, that's fine. Paul used to be a guy named Saul. And Saul had this dramatic experience with Jesus. He was transformed by Christ, came to know Christ, and he ends up going, leaving his life to pursue a new life where he begins to be discipled by the original disciples of Christ. So Paul never met Jesus physically, but upon meeting Jesus spiritually in this dramatic story, he then goes and becomes discipled by those who were with Jesus. And part of what they would teach him during that time is what this mission meant. What does it mean to go and make disciples? And we see this evidence in Paul's life and in this letter that Paul is now writing to his spiritual son who he had discipled in the faith. And it lays out three aspects, the first of which is this. It's an aspect of discipleship that we need to understand, which is Paul loved Timothy. He loved Timothy. The beginning of the verse there, it says, you then, my son. Now that seems like kind of an easy little greeting, but in fact, the original language has this idea of deep affection and love. That Paul was saying to Timothy in the beginning of this part, he's saying, I love you so much, you're my son. I care so deeply for you. See, Paul and Timothy had a deep relationship, a deep connection. They had spent time together. They had eaten food together. They had laughed. They had cried. They had, they had uh, done all kinds of things together. They had been on mission together. Paul knew Timothy. He wasn't some distant televangelist who didn't have a relationship. He wasn't some random person who was just saying, hey, do this and do that. No, no, no. He had invested time into Timothy. Why? Because he loved him. See, the truth about discipleship is this. You cannot make disciples unless you love the people you're discipling. And you cannot love the people that you're discipling unless you're willing to put in the time. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to discipleship. There's no shortcut to love, right? Anybody who's been married for a significant period of time, you know this. When you first meet someone, there's a lot of feelings that are there. But if you're in a healthy marriage, the longer that you've been married, the more you realize that what you felt at the beginning was great, but what you feel now is far deeper, far truer, far more beautiful than what you could have imagined. Why? Because there's no substitute for time. When you live life with people, when you experience them, experience things with them, when you go through struggles and trials, when you're praying together and doing life together, love is, it happens in a way that you cannot create in any other way. There's no shortcut for it. The question for us is this. If we're called to love the people around us, if we're called to make disciples and love those around us, how much time are we putting into that? See, we live in a world that is filled, absolutely filled with stuff, 
All of us have busy schedules. You've got work. You've got kids. You've got, you've got stuff going on. And then we get home. We're like, man, can I just watch my shows for a couple hours? Right? Can I just get my weekend to myself? And we live in this world that's busy, fast-paced, and full of stuff. And the thing is, if we're not intentional about the things in our life, if we're not intentional about loving people both locally and globally, it will not happen. It won't. Because our lives get filled with stuff. There's no shortage. How many of you sit around on a Saturday going, man, I just wish I could think of something to do. Right? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Even if we're relaxing, it's because we're intentionally taking the opportunity. The same is true about loving people. How often in our life do we look at our schedule and go, I'm going to intentionally love the people around me. I'm going to intentionally love my neighbor. I'm going to intentionally love my coworker. I'm going to intentionally love that family member that I really don't get along with and we fight at Thanksgiving, but I'm going to love them intentionally. Right? How do we do these things in our life? How do we carve out time to say, I'm going to love these people no matter what? What if it looked like this? This week at work, instead of having lunch on your own or having lunch while you look at your phone for an hour, you go and find a coworker and say, hey, I'd love to have lunch with you. Let's spend some time together. And you intentionally invest in that relationship, trying to disciple them to Jesus. What if this month you said once a week for the next 12 months, one week out of the month, we're going to invite our neighbors over and have dinner with us so we can get to know them, pour into them, and love on them? What if... After church, instead of going out to eat with the people that we like and know and our friends, we find the person who's a visitor for the first time and said, hey, you got lunch plans. I'd love to go out with you. You see, it takes intentionality to love people. It takes sacrifice to love people. I remember the very first missions trip I went on. I went to Guatemala. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but we went overseas. We, we traveled 10 hours into the jungles um, we bathed in rivers, and then afterwards they said, hey, by the way, just be careful, there's crocodiles in there. We're like, thanks for the heads up. We already, we've been in here for two days, you know. Um, but I remember it was life-changing, meeting, meeting people who had never seen a white person in their whole life, these small villages, and they, were, and they were mesmerized, and we hung out with these kids and played sports. I remember going on a trip to China where we smuggled Bibles in, and we were there undercover teaching a softball camp and getting to meet students who had never heard the name Jesus before and getting to hand them a Bible and pray with them. I remember going to Mexico and, and, and getting to go to these orphanages where there was no roof on their building, feeding these kids meals who, for them, it would have been the only meal they had that day. I remember those experiences, and here's what I'd learned. There's no way for me to really, truly love those people the way that is possible unless I go and see them. Here's my challenge for you, church. Here's how we do this locally. Who's the person God's called you in your life to start loving? Maybe it's a coworker, a family, a friend, or neighbor. And here's how it looks globally. Your church does mission trips every year. It's one of my favorite things about your pastor and your church. I believe this. If you're willing to go, God will change your heart. He will give you a love and a heart for the people of this world, the global mission that you've never had before. Will you love? Paul loved Timothy. Second thing we see is Paul fought for Timothy. Paul fought for Timothy. So he says, you then, my son, then he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what Timothy is saying here is he knows, or what Paul is saying to Timothy is he knows Timothy is struggling. He's going through a difficult period of time. If you read the rest of the letter, you'll learn some details about that. And he, he wants to encourage Timothy. He wants to inspire Timothy. He wants to speak life to Timothy. He, he wants to fight for Timothy. Timothy is his spiritual son. 
But I find it very interesting that the way that he fights for Timothy is not with good advice, but it's with the good news. How many knows the difference between advice and truth? We all have people in our lives that love to give us advice all around you, right? There's no shortage of people that want to tell you how you should live and what changes you should make and what you should do. There's advice all around us. It's, it's not hard to find, but truth is very hard to find. There's a big difference between advice and truth. And Paul, when he fights for Timothy, he doesn't say, hey, here's my thoughts, Timothy. You've been doing really good. Why don't you throw in the towel? Come back home. I'll take care of you. Or Timothy, he doesn't even say, hey, Timothy, don't worry. You'll be fine. You're a really gifted speaker. You're really talented. I mean, you're an awesome guy, right? He doesn't give him advice. He doesn't give him his own thoughts. What he does is he fights for him with the gospel. He says, I want to encourage you with the good news that is in Christ Jesus. What he's saying there is, it's the gospel. It's the news that, Timothy, you are a wretched sinner, but yet you're saved by the grace of Jesus. He loved you so much, he gave up everything for you, and he's declared your identity and mission is now in him, right? That's the gospel. It's the best news. It's the life-changing news. In fact, it's the only news that can transform this world. And that's what he speaks over him. He fights for Timothy with the gospel. I think one of the challenges that we have locally is we oftentimes fight for our preferences more than we fight for the gospel. I remember the first church I was at, I, um, we, we did this outreach by the beach, and we would offer to pray for people and invite them to come to church. And, and one Sunday, we were sitting there, and we had had the outreach the day before, and I, I saw a gentleman walk in. And he was clearly a visitor. He was kind of disheveled. He was wearing a hat. He looked like he had seen some rough days. And he walked in and sat in the back, and I was all excited. I'm like, hey, all right, this is great. And then I watched one of our ushers go up to the man, lean down. He whispered something in his ear, and the gentleman got up and left. I was like, what happened? So after service, I went up to the usher, and I, I said, hey, what happened? I saw that guy come in. And, and I remember he, and, and this other usher was a great guy. Like, he had a good heart. He meant well. But I remember he had a sense of pride. He was beaming with excitement as if he had done something great. And he said to me, yeah, I went up to him, and I said, in this church, we don't wear hats. And so he left. See, he thought he was fighting for something that mattered because it was, it was the church culture. We don't wear hats here. It was his personal preference. You dress this way when you come here. He thought he was fighting for something that mattered, but in reality, he missed the point, which is that gentleman could have heard the gospel that day. That gentleman could have been loved on that day. He could have been invited to someone's house that day, and he missed it because we fought for the wrong things. See, here's the truth, church. Oftentimes, we fight for our preferences more than we fight for people and the gospel, uh, what Jesus says about them. How many times when we look at people who don't know Jesus and we think, oh, gosh, I can't believe they're living that way, talking that way, acting that way. I've got a neighbor. You can pray for me. He's coming over for dinner tonight. I've been, I've been trying to reach him for a long time. And guess what? When I go hang out with him in his garage, he doesn't talk the way I talk. He doesn't live the way I live. He doesn't act the way I act. But when I stand there, my response is not I'm offended by his sin. Instead, my prayer is, I'm in love with who he is because Jesus loves him desperately. And my hope and my heart is that when the gospel transforms someone's heart, their behavior always changes. But how many of you know you can change someone's behavior and not change their heart at all? What are we fighting for? That's what it looks like globally. Are you fighting for the things that matter? Last thing I'll say about this is, in my experience in churches and traveling around, 
unfortunately, a lot of times, it's the people that have been in the church the longest that think and believe that things should be their way because they've somehow earned it. In fact, the opposite is true. Biblically, here's what we find. The more mature in Christ you are, the less you care about your preferences and the more you care about the gospel. In fact, that is the truth. I remember, uh, closing story on this point, and then we'll move on. I remember that same church, right, with that usher. We had our youth group, and we had a, a little old lady. She was in her 80s. Every single week, she would come into our youth service. We had rap music going. We had lights going. I promise you, it was not her culture. It was not her vibe, right? She would come in every week with a box of cookies that she had bought. She would go up to every student, hand them a cookie, give them a hug, and say, I love you so much. This was a woman who could care less about her preferences. She could care less about the music, the style, the dress of the students. What she cared about was the gospel and those kids knowing who Jesus was. What does that look like for you and I? It means this. We, give, we lay down our preferences to fight for those who God's given us locally. What it also means is this. We have missionaries who are all over the world today bringing the gospel, the message of hope, to people who don't know him. We have people in Spain and Colombia and Argentina. We have people in Europe and Africa and Asia who are fighting for people to know Jesus, who are fighting with the gospel today. And our job is to get behind them and support them. We may never be able to go, but what we can do is we can pray and we can give. We can fight for them to have the ability to fight for others with the gospel. That's our call. That's what God's given us. Paul loved Timothy. Paul fought for Timothy and lastly, Paul sends Timothy. We're going to invite uh, someone to come up and play as we, as we come to a close. The end of this text, he says this. This is verse 2. Paul says, And these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who are also qualified to teach others. Now this is a pretty powerful scripture because it, what Paul is doing, he's introducing a concept of discipleship. And the concept of discipleship is this, spiritual lineage. Right? Notice, notice this. Paul is saying to Timothy, he says, what you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. That's one generation, right? So Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. He then goes on and says, entrust to reliable people. That's second generation. So Timothy, you've heard me tell you this. You go and tell other people this. So now Paul's a, a spiritual grandfather, right? He says, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. That's four generations of spiritual lineage right here in this one text. Paul's teaching Timothy so Timothy can teach others so that they can teach others. So now Paul's a great-grandfather, Timothy's a grandfather, and he's got spiritual sons and daughters that go on for how, who knows how long. Spiritual lineage, transgenerational discipleship happening in this moment. Some of you, you may, you may not be a grandfather or grandmother. Most of us will never be a great-grandmother or great-grandfather. But spiritually, we all can be and we all should be. See, this is the biblical example of what discipleship looks like locally and globally. That we should all have spiritual sons and daughters that are coming after us who are not just, not just living and attending church, but are actually making disciples. The idea here is what God's done in you, he wants to do through you. That's what it means to be a Christian. What God has done in you, he wants to do through you. And so every person who's a part of the church, every person who's a follower of Jesus, should be able to have spiritual sons and daughters that have come after them who are then going and making disciples. And if we don't, it's not to guilt us, but it's to check our hearts and say, what am I doing that I need to adjust 
so that I'm seeing a spiritual lineage in my life. I remember, I remember um, the day Namit, a young man named Namit, walked into our youth ministry. Namit was from an Indian home. He's from India, from a, a strict Hindu home. And he walked into our youth group like a lot of students do. He was interested in a girl. And that's fine. We're like, hey, we'll take him. We'll take him how we get him. God will do the rest, right? And he walked in. And I, remember, uh, I remember meeting him and getting to know him. And, and um, we just started to disciple him, started to pour our life into him. We invited him to our house. And we would hang out. And he was not a believer at all. And would talk about his family and his life. And, and, um, and, and time went by. And, and, and months went by. And I remember we invited him to a youth retreat. And it was on that youth retreat. He came up to me after a service. He said, I think I, think I believe Jesus is real. And I think I need to give my life to him. But he was really wrestled with the fact that because he was from a strict Hindu home, he was risking losing everything. Risking losing his family, cutting him off. Risking losing being kicked out of the home. He was getting ready to go to college. He, he literally, by having faith in Christ, was almost he was risking his whole life that he had known. Everything. And we walked him through that and we continued to disciple and continued to love him. And, and I watched as he matured. He went off to college to be a doctor. And about halfway through his time, he came back and said, I feel like God's called me to be a pastor. And you can guess his parents were not super excited. Pastors don't make quite as much money as doctors typically. Um, but we wrestled through it. We walked through it. And we continued to disciple him. I remember him being in tears in my, my living room saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I may not have a place to stay tonight. But God was faithful. And five years ago, as I stepped into this role, Namit became a full-time college pastor at the, the church that I was at. He took the job that I had. And it was pretty cool. A year ago, I got to go back and, and speak at their young adult service, the service that I had led for, you know, four or five years. And, and when I got there, I was surprised because it was filled with college students who I didn't even recognize. And I remember the Holy Spirit showing me these are kids who have been discipled and led to the Lord by people who Namit had discipled and led to the Lord. These were spiritual grandchildren who I never met. I never even knew their names. I never had spent any time with them. But because we're faithful with the one, God will reach the many. See, that's the beauty of discipleship. It's the beauty of the model of Jesus Christ which is if we're faithful in making disciples locally and investing in disciple-making globally, God will use our little bit and turn it into much. One of the things I love about Speed the Light and the job that I get to do is this. Speed the Light, here's how I describe it. Our missionaries raise funds to get on the field, like the Andersons who are going to Africa. And they spend all this time and, and, and energy raising the money to get there. But the problem is when they get there, oftentimes they're 90% of the way there, but they can't execute the work and the mission that they have because they don't have the equipment and the, uh, the things that they need to get that last 10%. Speed the light is about the last 10%. It's about saying, hey, you're on the field, great, but now let's get you the tools that you need to take the gospel to the people who need it most whether it's vehicles, whether it's equipment, whatever their needs are, we provide it. Speed the light is that last 10% to say, let's get you all the way there. And I'm thankful that we get the opportunity to pour in. But can I tell you, COVID has really hurt. It's really hurt us. We have right now uh, a dozen missionaries with hundreds of thousands of dollars of projects who are waiting to be fulfilled, waiting to, to meet their needs so that they can get that final 10% so that they can take the gospel. 
Here's my, my encouragement and my challenge to you, church, and to my own heart is this. Will we fight? Will we fight for the one locally? Will we fight for the one globally? What's God doing in our hearts today that we would leave this place and say, I'm going to fight. I'm going to love people. I'm going to change my schedule and be intentional about loving people. I'm going to fight for people with the gospel who cares about my preferences. I'm going to give up my time and my money and my energy to fight for a gospel to go forth. And I'm going to send people. I'm going to make disciples who make disciples. Would you close your eyes from, with me? Bow your heads for a moment. In a second, I'm going to ask Pastor Doug to come and pray a, a prayer of blessing over us as a church. But before I do, my question to you would be this. As I started the sermon, I'm going to end it. Will you fight? Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you, speaking to you, encouraging, challenging you today. Maybe there's a person in your mind locally, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. Maybe globally there's a missionary. Maybe there's a country. Maybe there's a heart and a burden to be a part of a trip or just to give. Maybe there's a dollar amount that he's giving you. The question is not how will you fight. The question is will you fight? And if the answer is yes, Jesus will tell you how. So if your answer this morning is yes, I'm going to leave this place saying, God, I will fight. Would you stand to your feet with me? Just say, God, I'm going to leave this place committed to fight for your mission. Committed to fight for your glory and fight for the gospel. Pastor Doug, would you come and pray over us that we would have the ability and the power to do this as we walk out of this building? I'm going to ask you to open your eyes for a moment and look around. There's an army. There's an army here. If each of us mean this commitment that we meet, that we are making this morning, our communities will be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, as I pray, your Holy Spirit has already done the work. You have begun to prompt hearts. And even in many minds, there are those saying, I'm standing, but I really don't know what to do, and I don't know how to do this, and I'm, I'm unsure. And the Holy Spirit says to them, all I needed was a willing heart. I just needed you to say yes, and I will begin to guide and direct your life and your time and your path so that I can bring into your life and into the realm of your being divine appointments because there are people that are outside the walls of this church right now desperately wanting to be in the grace of Jesus but don't know how to get there without having been told. So, Lord, today we will fight. We will fight, first of all, we'll fight ourselves and the selfishness that we often encapsulate ourselves with, thinking that there's no more important person than me and my schedule is more important than anything else. We will fight that because you are our Savior and you are our Lord. And then, Lord, having understood that, we will then fight the feelings that we have that I don't have anything to say if somebody comes. I'm so worried about those aspects of my testimony, and yet we will be reminded that you told me all we needed to do was stand there and that in the moment of time we needed it, the Holy Spirit would speak in us and through us and give us the words to say and the attitude by which to display those words. So, Lord, we fight the inability and the insecurity 
And then, Lord, we stand together and we will fight as a body of Christ for one another. We stand as an army waiting to be deployed. There are lots of rumors of wars going on around our world, but none of them have the eternal significance as fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so together around this room, we ask that you would anoint, empower, deploy, and use us as we take this word that we heard Brother Jared bring to us today and we apply it to our lives because we believe that locally to globally, everybody deserves to be pursued with the love of Jesus Christ. And we receive this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.